The great American story, it's one that has countless versions with infinite beginnings. But for so many, the story starts in another country. Jaime Harin was born December 10th, 1935 in Quito, Ecuador. By 15, he had a mic in his hand, reporting for Radio Ecuador. By his early 20s, he had his sights set on new possibilities north. He came to America with a polish for news, but not the slightest clue about baseball. Still, somehow the radio icon and the sport found one another. 62 years later, and Harin is still going strong as the voice of the Los Angeles Dodgers. His oldest son, Jorge, is in the booth with him. And it's not only a joy, but a responsibility. The Harins have meant so much to this Latino community. And this is how it all went down. This is in Fuego. What's one thing that you've gotten from your father as a broadcaster? What's one thing that you've gleaned from him um, as far as, you know, working with him and, and taking with you into the next steps of your career? Well, you know, the, 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 the one thing that really stands out when people ask me that question, in all honesty, is I'd have to say it's the, the, the attitude and the concept that he maintains in putting together his broadcast because it is his broadcast. It is his because it's, it's, it's reflective of his style and his personality. And my father has always said, look at it as a public service. And the first time I heard that, I said, well, what do you exactly mean by this? this what I mean is that we're not necessary. Uh, we aren't uh, an integral part of someone's day in terms of, of uh, getting information or whatever. What we do is give people a mental break from all the problems, from all the things that they have to deal with on a daily basis that life gives He says, for three hours, we're the ones who are guiding you through that escape. When you can settle back and sit down for a while and let the pace of this game take you away from your preoccupations, from the things that you have to worry about that when the game is over, it's going to come back. It's there. It's things you have to deal with on a daily basis. But for, for two or three hours, whether they're in the car stuck in traffic or whether they're finally at home settling down, but you become that soundtrack. And it's so important. I think for the overall well-being of the community, we're that break, we're that escape valve. Life is, is mysterious. Life is grand. Life takes you on a roller coaster, but there are times that you need to have that a little bit balanced out. And a game like baseball, which, which takes anywhere from two to three hours to play, that has a rhythm, that like the ocean, it has the ebbs and flows, the ups and downs, the opportunity for some great excitement, followed by moments of retrospect. That's something really special. And if you can bring that in a very clear and concise and an interesting way, uh, then he says, I think that we've done a great service and he takes a lot of pride in that. I came to this country in 1955. I come from Quito, Ecuador, and I have been in front of a microphone since I was 15 years old. Uh, a cousin of mine used to take me to, to, to a radio station there when I was 
11, 12, 13 years old. Then at 15 years of, of age, I was able to apply for a, for a job at the HCJV, a huge radio station in Quito, Ecuador. And I was uh, hired to do news and special events. That, that, was not, that was 1951. I came to this country in 1955. I came directly to Los Angeles. And um, because I knew that uh, the concentration of Latinos in Southern California was very, very big. At the beginning, I thought it was uh, that I was going to come to New Jersey because I wanted also to be um, to be a, a, a commercial pilot. So I, I was going to attend the Tittleboro School of Aeronautics in New Jersey. But at the same time, I was already in in radio. So. Uh, then I thought of going to Chicago, but I don't know, in those years I thought that I had a wrong impression that Chicago wasn't a nice city. And then later on I found that's the most beautiful city among the big cities in the country. I love Chicago. So then I started reading about, uh, about the, the Latino community in Southern California. Then I said, that's the place where I should go. So I came to Los Angeles and I arrived here on June 24, 1955. And, um, on my by December '55, I I was hired by KWKW to do a few hours of, of radio on weekends. Then, uh, about six months later, I was able to find a full-time job with with KWKW doing news, because my background was uh, news and special events at HCJB in Quito, Ecuador. Uh, I was a newsman. I wasn't a sportscaster uh, in Ecuador never did any, any sport in Ecuador. I came here as a newsman and I went to KWKW as a newsman and I was able to, to work hard in order to, to establish a very, very solid news department. By 1957, I was, I was named the news and sport director of KWKW. Then I, I found out in December 1955 that um, baseball was a huge sport in this country. I didn't know anything about baseball because in Quito we don't play baseball. I never saw baseball in my life, never saw that in my life. So when I came to this country in, in December, I saw huge amounts of people around in sets and radio sets listening to uh, and watching the whole series in New York between the, the, the Yankees and the Brooklyn Dodgers. And I said to myself, that must be a great sport because so many people were around in, in, in restaurants and businesses and hotels everywhere. They were listening to, to the World Series in New York. So uh, I decided to find out about baseball. There were two, two, two great teams in Los Angeles in those days. Uh, the, the, Hollywood, uh, the Hollywood stars in Hollywood, they used to play at the Gilmore Field. And the, and the Los Angeles Angels used to play at the Wrigley Field. There was a copy of the Wrigley Field in Chicago. It was at 46 and, and Avalon in, in South Central Los Angeles. So I started going there in order to learn something about baseball without thinking that eventually, someday, Major League Baseball will come to Los Angeles. I just, I was, I was very sports-minded. So on weekends, I used to go to the field, on Gilmore Field especially and learn something about baseball. Then, then suddenly in 1958, the Dutch come to the West Coast, and uh, one day at the station, uh, William Beaton, who was the owner and GM of the station, called all the announcers of his office to give us the great news that the, 
Darquiga signed a contract to broadcast the Dodger games in Spanish, and he said, I need two announcers. And he said, I want you to be on all the two. And I said, Mr. Beaton, thank you very much, but uh, I know some baseball, but I don't think I am ready to be in front of a microphone and describe the action. So he liked me very much. I was, do I was doing boxing from the Olympic Auditorium every Thursday, and that was very successful. So he said, Jaime, I want you to be doing baseball. I know that you have talent to do sports. You have been doing boxing for two years and doing very well. I said, Mr. Beaton, I'm sorry, but I don't feel that I can do 100% to the job. He said, Jaime, I'm going to give you one year. I want you to study the English sport, and I want to be there because I like you. You are young, 23 years old, and there's a great future for you in baseball. So that year, 58, I was listening every radio podcast, reading every book, every magazine, every newspaper about baseball. You know, in those days, we didn't have the technology that we have now. Now it's very easy to enter the internet and, and ask a question there, and the answer is right there. In those days, you had to really look around. I used to go uh, to, to, uh, uh, to, to bookstores and look for, for material, and I started studying the game. 1959, it was my, my first year. I was very nervous, very green. Rene Cardenas was, was number one in the board, and he helped me a lot. At the beginning, I think I, I think I waited about two or three months in the season to start my, my first inning. Finally, I did two innings, and that was the beginning, uh, without dreaming that uh, later on I would stay with the Dodgers for 61 years. I become the Dean of all the radio announcers and the image of baseball. And uh, my longevity has been great, but uh, you know, being surrounded by my party, now that Jorge works with me, it's a blessing. Stefan was very much involved in baseball, and, uh, and uh, it's, it's, it has been uh, uh, something very, very unique, very, very, very fine. Jorge was raised in the shadow of Dodger Stadium, something his own son Stefan would come to appreciate years later. And during the summer, he spent time running around in it. He and his brothers actually worked jobs there, Jorge as an usher. While his friends wanted to know what it was like to hang with Sandy Koufax, Jorge explains things were far less glamorous than that and far more personal. Oh, yeah. I, I basically grew up around the organization because my dad started there in 1959, at, at which point I was five years old. But I remember going to the ballpark with my dad from time to time early since the days of the Coliseum. Uh, in a nutshell, then... They moved to Dodger Stadium when I was in high school, my senior year. I, uh, uh, um, I was an usher during the summer time while I was going to school, going to college. And uh, so, yes, I, I, I met my wife there. Uh, it, it, Dodger Stadium has been a focal point within personally my family, you know, aside from my dad and Stefan. I mean, for me so much of my life has evolved around the stadium. You know, it's been a home away from home. Yeah, I mean, I remember going to the stadium as a little kid all the time with my dad, uh, going to games before 
uh, sitting on the club level before the club level was full of suites and everything like that, before all the renovations happened to Dodger Stadium. The way it looked in the sandlot, that's exactly how I remember my first memories at Dodger Stadium. Uh, so we were right next to the press box and, you know, with my grandfather being so close to the Moda family and, and Manny always inviting me down to the stadium to hit in the cages and all that before the players ever got there and just kind of hanging around the clubhouse and, and being around the game a lot more and learning more, uh, which helped my career. Uh, through high school and college, which eventually led to me getting drafted uh, and playing a couple of years in the minor league system with the Dodgers and then with the Phillies as well. I, I used to get a lot of uh, inquiries from my young friends when I was in the fifth and sixth grade about uh, the fact that my dad was with the Dodgers. And did that mean that Don Drysdale and Sandy Koufax used to come over and hang out at the house or whatever? They, you know, all these crazy ideas. And of course, I would go along with it and say, oh, yeah, sure. They, 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 they come over all the time, you know, uh, well, well, you know, which really was not the case. But, you know, uh, at that time, growing up uh, with my dad, we were always aware of it, you know, always aware from the very beginning about what my dad did and uh, who he worked for and everything. But uh, truly, uh, it, you know, you really can look at the, the, the arrival of Fernando Valenzuela having changed so much that affected us as a family, you know, uh, my dad was thrust into now a much bigger spotlight uh, that he, that was more on the national basis as opposed to just the local, uh, you know, the local uh, the local scene. Uh, you know, so so my parents were very very supportive. They had formed a very strong partnership, and this is really the origin. I, I, I'll, I'll try and be brief, but uh, they, they had. Forged such an, a good understanding and a partnership that my brothers and I never felt like we missed out on anything, even though my dad was was gone most of the time, especially in the summers. So, uh, you know, it was a couple of times that my mom would convince my dad to take us along on a road trip to San Francisco. He, 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 would, he would take us along. We'd spend a weekend with him that way uh, without my mom. Maybe really it was to give her a break from us for a while that she was going crazy. Blanca Harin was the glue that held the Harins together. When Jaime left for road trips, she maintained continuity and comfort for the boys. When it comes down to it, she is one of the two reasons Jaime is still calling games today. I will think that my longevity depends on three main topics. The first thing is my love for baseball. I fall in love with the game. I can do two games every single day for seven days a week without getting tired. I love it what I do. I think it's a blessing that, that I am in the best seat in the, in the ballpark, that I am among the titans of my profession, Vince Kelly, uh, Ernie Howell, uh, so many of them, John Miller and, uh, and Jack Back, all of them, you know, and then watching the best ball players in the, in the game, Willie Mays, Andy Koffers, Dan Drysdale, Maurice Willie Davis, Oliver Scheisser, Mike, Mike Piazza, um, Oh, you name it, you name it, you know, Henry Aaron and, and the best of the best. It has been a blessing for me, really. And uh, that was the, the first reason. The second reason is the support that I have for my wife. Um, she passed away almost a year and a half ago. And, uh, and, uh, but she was a champion in my corner. She helped me all the time. She never complained about anything, about my absences, uh, about my traveling. Never, never 
she was very quiet. The fact that you know, she didn't like baseball too much. She will come just uh, in, the, in the last few years, she will come only to one or two games a year. She would always go there to the opening day. But uh, she didn't care much about the game, but uh, despite that, she helped me so much. It, it's unbelievable. Vin Scully has been a comfort to all of us for decades, and he was there for his friend Jaime when he needed support the most. In the wake of Blanca's death, Vin had some sage wisdom to offer Jaime on how best to deal with the loss of his wife. To be honest with you, I don't have enough words to really appreciate and to express my feelings towards Vin Scully, because he has played such a big, big part in my formation as a baseball announcer. He was so nice with me at the beginning. He used to take me to lunches. And uh, later on, you know, when we were on the road, if we had a day off, you can count 100% that we will be together, along with the traveling secretary, eating someplace. He, uh, he has been my teacher. He has been my hero. He has been my friend. He has been my advisor. He has been everything to me. And the way that, uh, you know, when, um, when I lost my wife, I was already thinking before she passed away that I, it was time for me to cut down my traveling, stay and do practically what he used to be at the end, only the, the Western Division baseball, and don't go to the East Coast mainly. Because it was time for me to be more time at home. But then when my wife passed away, uh, I had a beautiful talk on the phone with Vin. Vin called me and he talked to me for 30 minutes. It was the most glorious, the most beautiful talk I have ever heard. He was so nice with the way he talks, the way that he manages the language. Uh, it was unbelievable. And he told me, Jaime, you know, I hate giving advice. I gave you one time, one advice at the beginning of your career when he told me, uh, keep your distance from the ball players. Don't get too close to them. Respect them, be with them, but not too close because that will affect your job. Then the second advice was, Hyman, go back to work full time now that you lost your wife. The only thing that really helped you will be doing what you love to do, doing baseball. So I called the Rogers, I called Lan Rosen, I said, Lan, Forget about the, the agreement that we had a few months ago, but I decided to go back to full time. And he said, Jaime, whatever you say, we will do it. You do as many games as you want to do. If you want to take a vacation here, vacation there, please do it. We will do whatever. We will accommodate to, to your schedule. Do it, whatever you want to do. So I said, no, no, you want to do everything. So I did it, 162 games, plus the position. So I was able to do that because, because uh, of what happened. Take a moment and recite everything you hear me say. Try to match whatever syncopation of voice and tenor that might resonate with you. Now imagine I'm speaking in another language. Perhaps English isn't even your first language. Jaime Harin not only had to call baseball games, a sport he was still learning in 1959, but he did it solely by listening to the English closed-circuit broadcast of Vin Scully and Jerry Doggett. He would then paint a picture for those at home as if he were really at the game. Pretty remarkable, if you ask me. 
Latinos make up a, a huge part of the Dodger base right now. It's just a given, obviously. You go to Dodger Stadium, um, it's just, you know, a sea of, of us Latinos. But back then, you had to broadcast, if I'm not mistaken, um, Dodger games. You had to listen to the English part of, of things and then recreate it for the Spanish audience. So we were getting it second, third hand um, back in the, the, the early 60s. Um, explain to me a little bit more how difficult that was. Well, in the, you know, in the first uh, five, six, seven years, we didn't travel with a team. Uh, but uh, we had a, a line uh, from the ballpark to the studio, Pasadena, KWKW Studios. So we used to recreate the games. Um, recreations were nothing new in those days, but it was different because they used to use the teletype. They used to they used to be behind half an inning or one inning um, in English. And but in our case, you know, we had to be right there. Uh, we didn't have the facilities other stations have, so we used to listen to Lynn and Joey and give a simultaneous distribution. And we were on, on top of everything, really. Lynn was great with me. He used to help me a lot before the broadcast. He would tell me uh, lots of things about the, the game to be played. He would tell me about the, the situation at the ballpark, the attendance there, the climate, the transportation, everything. He used to give me, he knew that I was that it was, you know, in anxious to get information to fill the time. So we we used to be on tap. Foul ball, foul ball, strike, strike ball, ball. When it was a difficult play, we had to wait until the play was over. Especially with men on base. It was a single or, a, or an extra base, we have to wait until the play the play was over to come on. We had cartridges, different cartridges in those days, you know, we had we had a big and big uh, tape going around with about one hour long with, with the background noise. So in the third inning, you will always, in every game, you will hear peanuts, peanuts, peanuts. <laughs> it was a thing going on. And we had a cartridge for a single, a cartridge for a double, a triple, and a number one. So that was the way we, we used to recreate. Uh, it was difficult. In those days, you know, we used to have some, some double headers. And doing a double header was really difficult because you have to keep the game in your mind and, and try to figure out where is the, the second baseman located, where is the, the shortstop, where is the left fielder. So you have to have the game in your mind, close your eyes and, and, and think that you are seeing the game there and, and describe and describe. So, uh, but after that, we start traveling first to San Francisco, then the Dodgers decided to take us on, on, to every city. Something happens to you when you become a father. Suddenly, you can't sleep as much, and damn it if anyone else in this house is going to sleep as well. Jorge has a wonderful story on how his hardworking father nudged his son to push even harder. All that after the break. Jorge Jarin's career has been a winding thread of fortuitous encounters. One job after another led to more exposure for the young Jarin. Thanks to the 1984 Los Angeles Olympics, and thanks to his job as a public relations spokesperson at the time, a person would change Jorge's life while he was listening in, ready to give him an opportunity that would make Jorge Jarin Captain Jorge. 
on KABC Radio. But it wasn't until I was in high school that uh, when my dad said, hey, listen, you know, a great summer job would be as an usher. So then, uh, I, you know, I, I, I got the job as an usher. Uh, my younger brother, Mauricio, sold programs in the ballpark. And we worked. And we were around the environment. We saw what it, what it took uh, to put on a game, to be a part of the game staff and everything. And learned an appreciation. After that, I went off to college, graduated from college. One of my very first jobs uh, was as a page at NBC. I was very fortunate to get one of those lucrative positions of being a page at NBC. And uh, part of that entailed giving a one-hour tour to, to tourists who were coming to see what was going on at the Burbank studio. So that right there gave me an opportunity to really hone my skills in speaking, public speaking. Uh, I was aware that the Los Angeles Olympic Organizing Committee was coming into being and that they were organizing a committee for the Olympic Games in Los Angeles in 84. I applied for a position there being bilingual. I thought there's got to be something for me here. I got hired immediately and was added to the public relations staff uh, as a, a PR spokesperson. And it was after the games had concluded, uh, I was still with the committee for another six months. And one of my jobs was to go around uh, doing radio and television interviews about the success of the Olympic Games, the impact on the community. And it was one of those interviews, which happened to be at Dodger Stadium on, on Sports Talk with Bud Frillo and Tommy Hawkins, uh, where I was a guest on that show. And the general manager at that time, George Green, was listening happened to be stuck in traffic on his way to a Dodger game, heard my, um, my, my, my presence on the, sh on the show, liked it very much and thought, he's young, he's Latino, and we happen to be looking for someone right now that we wanted to add to our morning show group as well as in the afternoon, and that was to be a traffic reporter flying around in a helicopter. Asked me, he, he tracked me down after the interview through my dad, called me, uh, I interviewed for the position. Uh, I really didn't think I was going to get it because I didn't have any real experience as a reporter in radio, but I felt that I could do the job. I had the confidence for it. And next thing I know, after three weeks, I thought oh, the position was given to somebody else. I got hired. Uh, and I spent uh, the next 25 years as part of the Ken and Bob late, later on. It was, uh, uh, it was, Minyard and Barkley. It was, uh, you know, so I worked with a number of people at KBC Radio in English. And George Green at that time says, oh, well, Jorge, you speak Spanish, right? He says, let me contract you out to some of the Spanish radio stations. Uh, at that time, there was no one doing traffic from a helicopter for any of the Spanish radio stations. So as I became Captain Jorge on KBC Radio, I also became El Capitan on La X and KTN, uh, on KSKQ, uh, 1540, uh, haciendo los reportes de tráfico desde los helicópteros, desde el helicóptero, uh, en el Capucóptero 1540, you know, things like that. So I became the first. Now you're on Aguila Uno, right? Uh, no, I never was in, on, 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 there was talk of me going to Aguila Uno at KMEX, but uh, because of my schedule and my contract with KABC, it, it didn't work out. Um, so I, I did not, so instead I stayed on, on the radio side, both English and in Spanish. And, uh, so I was, uh, one of the few people that would be heard on a daily basis 
on three radio stations, one in English and two in Spanish, uh, switching from one station to another to do the traffic reports and then banter with the, the show hosts and things like that. And while I was doing this, you know, my father is the one who has always pushed a, a, a strong work ethic. And my dad, re remembering that I was getting up at 3.45 in the morning every day, Monday through Friday, to be at Van Nuys Airport by 4.45 so I could get airborne by 5 o'clock, first traffic report at 5.15, I would fly until 9 o'clock, then I would land, and then I would come back in the afternoons, uh, leaving the house at 3 o'clock, going on in the air at 4 and flying from 4 until 6. And my dad said one day, he says, you've got all this time in the middle of the day that you're wasting. Why don't you do something? And I'm like, really? I'm already working a full-time job, but my dad pushed me. And uh, actually what happened then was I started a, a partnership in an advertising agency, at that time specializing Spanish language advertising. And uh, we helped launch what is now Prime Ticket. What was Prime Ticket now is Fox. Uh, we, 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 what we launched, agency was uh, that? This was called RLR Harin. I was a partner. Robosham, Lasher, Rossman, and Harin. Sounded more like a law firm, so we changed it to RLR Harin. I had been with the agency now as a partner uh, almost, gosh, I want to say almost 18 years. And my partners were older than I was, and they were looking to retire and move on. So I left the agency when I heard that the director of Spanish broadcast sales for the Dodgers was going on maternity leave. So they asked me to pinch hit and fill in. Um, Derek Hall, who's now with the Diamondbacks at Arizona, was then the uh, VP of communications. And he asked me to see if I could, uh, you know, if I was interested in selling my father's broadcast and helping them in expanding the radio network which I did, uh, the person I replaced decided to, that motherhood was far more important and she never came back. So I was offered the job on a full-time basis and I did both uh, KBC radio and the Spanish radio station simultaneously and the Dodgers up until 2011. And then there was a change in ownership at KBC, uh, at which point they brought in all new people and I was free to work full-time for the Dodgers at that point. And that was in 2004. Um, and then in 2011, I left KABC. In 2012, the Dodgers said, hey, uh, Fox Deportes is interested in doing 30 games in Spanish. Would you be interested in working with Manny Mota? Absolutely. Jumped at the opportunity. 30 games became 50 games. 50 games then the following year became 100 games. And then not long after that, when the Dodgers and Guggenheim took over and launched Spectrum, which is uh, the Dodgers channel, uh, they decided to move Fernando and Pepe over to the television side uh, to complement Joe Davis and Oral Hershiser. And they asked me then to move into the radio booth to work side by side and be the first father and son broadcasting team in Major League Baseball. kind of nice to be in the booth with a living legend like Jaime Harin. It's even better if he's your dad. The conversations they've shared have been invaluable. The most important may be that they are there to add some joy and be a respite from the stress of the unrelenting traffic of life. Jorge explains that there's a good side and a sartorial bad side to working with dad. 
I had I had attained a career in broadcasting, uh, but I never expected it to go in the direction that it has uh, it has gone. Uh, specifically, uh, again, I'm the perfect example of being in the right place at the right time when opportunity uh, knocked on my door. But uh, it's you know. The last five years, especially once I joined uh, the broadcast booth with my dad, because I originally started out uh, on, on the TV side working with Manny Moda, doing a select number of Dodger games in Spanish. Then came the the opportunity uh, when there was some restructuring. They decided to move Fernando and Pepe, who had been working with my dad, over to the TV side. And I, I'm sure because of a you know a solid relationship with Pepe Iniguez and Fernando. And using his name to capitalize to kind of like jumpstart the TV side even more so once uh, the Dodgers had committed themselves to broadcasting all the the, the, uh, the Dodger games in Spanish. So then that gave me the opportunity to join my dad. And I, at first, I was you know a little uh, I was I was surprised. I was uh, uh, elated at that opportunity to be with him because. After all, he's my dad. I felt that in radio, it's very important to have chemistry in order to be successful, especially morning shows, afternoon drive time shows. I'd always seen the, the, the importance of having a chemistry. And that chemistry existed. But it's gone one step further because I now find myself in, in the very unique position that uh, when my mom passed away, uh, we didn't want my father to be alone. He has this big house here uh, in Southern California. So uh, my wife and I made the decision to go and move in with my dad. So not only am I working with my dad, but I'm back in the house that I grew up in, uh, back in the same room that, 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 that I occupied when I was in high school before I went off to college. Uh, and and it's, it's strange in a way. Um, and then, but the thing is, now it's a lot easier because Dad and I are, are, are together all the time. Uh, I can drive him to the ballpark. We can drive back from the ballpark. The advantage of that uh, is that we have a conversation. We can discuss uh, the, the, the different scenarios and the little subset stories that occur for the broadcast. You know, we have an opportunity to kind of have uh, an exchange, if you will. And so now we're together all, all the time. And, you know, uh, as I think I may have mentioned to you previously, uh, last year, uh, or was it now two, two years ago, I think, uh, Brian Gumbel uh, was uh, out to do a story on us for uh, HBO Real Sports. And he asked me, what's the greatest thing about your job? And I said, that I get to work with my dad. He said, so what's the worst thing? And I said, down with my dad all the time now, you know, and, and, and the funny thing is that we're starting to rub off on each other because I'll, I noticed that uh, I may buy a pair of shoes that I really like and my dad will look at them and say, Hey, those are really nice. Where'd you get those? The next thing I know, he's got a pair of the same shoes or, you know, uh, same shirt. So I said, dad, you know, now it's like no longer father and son. It's like brothers. I have to tell them, hey, are you going to wear that? Because this is what I was going to wear. And, you know, you don't want to be looking like matching twins. And plus, you know, there's a strong resemblance between father and son. So I said, all I need now is to be walking around Dodger Stadium in the press box. And they're going, 
yeah, he's even beginning to dress like his dad, you know, but you know, it's, and the other thing too, it's a, a bit of a double-edged sword because I bring it, I bring this upon myself wanting to do the best job that I can. Um, being in the, in, in, in the broadcast booth, there's a certain amount of uh, relaxed uh, feeling, uh, you know, with each other. And yet at the same time, there are moments when I catch myself thinking, you know, I know he's my dad, but my God, he's a Hall of Fame broadcaster. He's at the top of his game, uh, nationally recognized. And I know that he's listening to every word I'm saying. Do I measure up? How do I, how do, do I uh, reach that standard? And, you know, I realize that there's nothing wrong in striving for that standard, but I will never be at that same level. Uh, the closest thing is, oh, he sounds like his dad an awful lot. But that's probably where the comparison ends because my father has a, the, the, such a command of the language. Uh, it's so descriptive. Spanish is by far a more descriptive language than English. English is a very precise and it takes less to say, to make a point to say the same thing. In Spanish, it takes a little bit more. And that's where his talent is. And I think that uh, the times that my father spent translating, literally translating for Vince Scully, really impacted his style. Not to say that he is a, a copy of Vince Scully, but there's a strong similarity in the fact that he's very relaxed, very much into storytelling, very much into really equating the, 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 the broadcast to almost a one-on-one -on -one type of situation. When he's talking to you, it's like he's talking to you specifically, not to a general audience. And, you know, I'm on one hand, I'm a little intimidated by that. On the other hand, you know, I, I, I'm not going to pass up this opportunity to learn from the master. So I find myself in this precarious situation and it was precarious. I should say up until my son, Stefan gave me the advice. He said, Hey, you know, all you got to do dad is be yourself. Just do the best you can. And if you're happy with what you've done, then there's nothing more that you can do. So you don't need to do this to please anyone or think that someone else is listening and making that comparison. But it, it, in the beginning, it was, it was tough because I've made it tough on myself. Stefan was sitting in his room, preparing for the upcoming year at college, but he was about to have his life change forever. A call would come in and suddenly he would become a ball player within the Dodgers organization. And in an instant, the Harin influence on this franchise spanned three glorious generations. All that after the break. I guess getting into, you know, how was it, you know, it's almost like uh, you guys are a Dodger legacy. You know, how did you feel that at all growing up that, you know, hey, my my family is is, you know, my grandfather is is kind of, you know, Dodger, you know, legend. Or was it and how was it? How was it growing up? Yeah, as a kid, I think uh, for me, I think it went unnoticed. I didn't really realize um, how big he was uh, in the LA community and in baseball. And then when I was eight years old, he was inducted into the all, into the uh, National Baseball Hall of Fame. And I think shortly after that, it really started to hit me and and really understand like, oh wow, like you know, now you I hear my grandfather's name mentioned with Ben Scully, uh, Bob Costas. 
you know, some of the some of the the great broadcasters in sports and baseball uh, around you know around the country. So I think that's when it really started to hit me. And you know, it was awesome growing up. My grandfather loved taking me and my brothers to the ballpark as we were, you know, when we were kids, he would take us down into the clubhouse, take us onto the field during batting practice and stuff like that. And that was just stuff that, you know, you look back and you really appreciate it a lot more nowadays. I mean, I have, I have pictures with my brothers, uh, you know, sitting in the dugout with Randy Johnson or on the field with Alex Rodriguez when he was with the Seattle Mariners. Um, and it's just stuff like that, that when you're such, when you're so young, you don't really appreciate it as much as you do now. When you look back at it, it's like, wow, you know, I, I was, I grew up extremely grateful and I grew, but I also realized that I grew up extremely fortunate to, to experience those things that not very many people get to experience. And I just feel like those experiences really helped me as I wanted to become a professional baseball player. Uh, and, and, you know, kind of getting that, that inside perspective as to what it's like and, you know, the hard work that it takes to, to be a major league baseball player. So did that help the baseball bug? I mean, you were, you know, eight years old, nine years old going to, you know, Dodger Stadium. Did that help yeah. in the, hey, I'm going to pro? 100%. I always grew up saying that I wanted to play professional, or I wanted to play baseball as long as I could. Whether it, that was through high school, through college, to, you know, a minor league career, or a major league career, whatever it was, I always knew that I wanted to play baseball until somebody told me you can't play baseball anymore. Um, so... You know, that really, you know, kind of, you know, as a, as a teenager, uh, you, know, uh, you know, 12 years old, 13 years old, 14 years old, and you're kind of, you know, you know, I get that that inside look into the clubhouse and everything, and you see the lifestyle of a Major League Baseball player. It was awesome, and it really drove me uh, to want to one day reach that level. Unfortunately, I, I, I got drafted. I played professional baseball. I never made it to the Major Leagues, but all of those experiences helped me get to as far as I got. And I guess take me through, you know, high school and, you know, the next steps after that, like, and then take me up to the day that you got drafted. Yeah. So I went to Gabrielino High School in San Gabriel. Um, I was a good high school player, but I, I wasn't a guy that was getting, you know, division one looks or anything like that. Um, so I always knew that, okay, I'm most likely if I want to continue playing baseball, I'm going to have to go through the junior college route. So I went to Orange Coast College where I played for John Altabelli, John Altabelli who uh, was just recently in the, the Kobe Bryant crash and along, along with his wife, Carrie, and his daughter, Alyssa, passed away, unfortunately. Um, I played for Alto at Orange Coast College for two years, um, and I loved playing for Alto. Uh, he was one of the best coaches I ever had, and the coaching staff in general at OCC was just was awesome. And, um, you know, Alto told me when I got there that I was going to have to work really hard. Mm. Uh you know, to not only assure my spot on the team, but any, any sort of plan that I got. So my first year I was a red shirt um, and I was okay with that because, it, you know, going through, you know, that transition to college is tough on a high school baseball player. You go from playing twice a week to, you know, having, you know, four or five games a week at times. And, uh, you know, the schedule is different. You, you don't have that, that typical high school schedule where there's a lot more responsibility on yourself. So um, that first year at OCC was, was awesome. It was a great learning experience. It prepared me well for my second year where I turned into a utility guy. Um, I was playing basically wherever I could get playing time. Uh, and then after my second year, uh, you know, I was always fortunate. Also, was always very honest with and he told me, hey, you know, we got some some bounce backs that are coming in, Division One bounce backs. You know, you're more than welcome to stay and fight for a spot here. He's like, I think you can. He's like, but with it being your second year, he's like, 
it, it, it wouldn't be a bad idea to look at other options. I'm just going to be honest. With you. And I always really appreciated the, the honesty right. from him. And, you know, I did that. I transferred to East Los Angeles College for uh, my second year of eligibility. And I got drafted by the Dodgers that year in 2011. Um, so that, that, that day that I got drafted, I'll never forget it. Um, I wasn't expecting to be, you know, a, a day one or a day two. I knew that I was most likely going to be in the later rounds of the MLB draft if I already had picked up that year. Um, and I remember sitting by my computer and I was doing some stuff in the morning. I think I was actually getting ready uh, to register for my fall semester um, for school. And um, I remember just having the draft on, on my computer in the background. And I got a couple, I got a, a missed call from my dad. I called him back right away. And he said that Logan White, who was the scouting director of the Dodgers at the time, uh, just told them to, you know, make sure you're paying attention to the draft. You're going to get some good news right now. So sure enough, a couple minutes later, the Dodgers come on the clock and I see my name pop up. So uh, that was just, you know, my mom was there with me. It was just me and my mom at the time, but it was an awesome experience. Uh, just to kind of hear your name, all your information come over that draft call. Uh, and then, you know, after that, I, I knew that, hey, you know, this is my opportunity to play baseball, professional baseball. This is what I always worked for. I'm going to go for this right now. I'm going to sign. Um, Dodgers offered me a contract and I reported to Arizona for the Arizona Rookie League. That's right. And, and so during that draft in the later on, so it's, it's running on your computer. Is it, it was it more like a broadcast, like audio broadcast of, of the draft? Yeah, yeah. So 2011, I'm not sure. Well, MLB Network might have been around, but they weren't covering the draft back then like they do now. Um, so there was a, a draft ticker, and you could you can turn on the draft ticker through MLB.com, and it would just it would just continuously play. So, for example, if the Cardinals were selecting whoever was was at the was in the the Cardinals war room would announce the pick. It would come over the computer, then it would go to the next team, and then you know, sure enough, when the Dodgers came up in that 40th round, they they announced my name. Gotcha, gotcha. And then you report to camp and take us through being a. I mean, I I played you know a, a, a cup of coffee in college. That was it. How is it being drafted and, and reporting for camp and take us through that journey? Yeah. So first year of rookie ball, I, I you know like I said, it was it was kind of like my experience going into college where. Mm -hmm. I knew I was I was facing a new experience. I didn't really know what to expect. I had that preview as to what life was like in in the major leagues, mm. just kind of being around a major league clubhouse here and there. But I really didn't know what to expect in the minor leagues. So I reported to Arizona, and my manager was Jody Reed, who played I want to say ten or twelve years in the big leagues. Uh, was a middle infielder, and for me that was perfect. Coming in as a middle infielder, I was like, okay, this is awesome. I'm going to learn so much from him, and sure enough, I did. Um, so just being able to work with Jody Reed on a daily basis really helped improve my game as a middle infielder, especially defensively, became really confident uh, as a defender, uh, that actually gave me the ability to play all over the infield mm -hmm. throughout my minor league career. Um, but like I said, going back to that initial experience, it, it was, it was awesome. I mean, you report to the major league, uh, spring training facility. So you're at Camelback Ranch. Um, you're in a hotel with all the teammates. So it's, you're just, you're surrounded by your baseball buddies 24 seven. Um, so that was just an awesome experience and just get that, that, that initial year of professional baseball where everything is baseball. Mm. You wake up, you go to the complex in the middle afternoon around two o'clock, you get your workouts in, uh, you work out with the team, you, you go through your batting practice and then it's a game at seven o'clock and it's just the same routine every single day. And I fell in love with it. 
mm-hmm. uh, because it was every, it was everything that I wanted. You know, I always wanted that that professional baseball career. So um, it was just that first year was such an awesome experience. We as a team, we did really well. We ended up winning the Arizona League. Um, and I believe that was like the first minor league Dodger championship in like 20 years. Um, so that, that was an awesome experience just to go through everything with those guys. And, you know, a lot of guys, uh, were just like me, you know, there were a lot of college draftees in that draft class. So, um, you know, going through that first year with a lot of experienced baseball players and just always just eat, eat, just eat, sleep and breathe baseball. Uh, you know, for a full year from draft day all the way to, to September was an awesome experience. And then take us, how was the experience, you know, the, the, the joy of being drafted? How was it being traded? That had to be just like the, the oddest sensation ever. I mean, yeah. So year two for me was a, kind of a weird year. So uh, I was in the Arizona rookie league again for a second year. Um, I had a, like, I got a concussion right before the season had started. Um, so it kind of set me back. So the very early part of that year was a struggle for me just because I felt like I was behind everybody else. I really couldn't do anything for those three and a half weeks that I had, that I was out with the concussion. Um, so the first part of that year was a struggle and then not sure what it was. It was just, whether it was just, you know, forcing myself to be more confident in myself. Um, that second half of that season, I really started to play well. And I want to say that, you know, I started to play well right around the time of that Victorino trade. And I wasn't originally named into that trade. There was a player to be named later. So initially it was Ethan Martin and I believe Josh Lindblom who were traded to Philadelphia. And then there was also a player to be named later. Um, so, uh, so going through, I wasn't playing to get traded, but I always knew, okay, this has kind of been a weird year. I'm not really sure where I stand within the organization. If I can get an opportunity somewhere else, mm-hmm. it would be awesome. Um, so I wasn't ever going to ask for my release or anything like that. I was just always thinking if I could be involved in a trade, that would be great. Um, so I just happened to start playing really well, you know, mid July, all of August, uh, early September, I played really well. Um, and sure enough, after our season was over, the minor league season ends a little earlier than the major league season. Um, after our season was over, I was already home uh, on September 28th. I got a call from Dijon Watson. And, um, it went straight to voicemail. I called them back right away. And originally the voicemail said, Hey, I got some big news, you know, give me a call back whenever you get a chance. So I'm thinking like, great. The only time the player, the director of player development calls you is to release you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so I was thinking, okay, I might be getting released here. So I gave him a call back and he said, Hey, I got good news and bad news. What do you want? First I said, um, I'll take the bad news. So he tells me, well, the bad news is you're not coming to spring training with us next year. And I was like, okay, so what's the good news? It's like, the good news is you're, you just got traded to Philadelphia. He's like, you're the player to be named later in the Shane Victorino trade. And like, I, I was so stunned. I was so stunned. I was thinking like, wow, me, a rookie ball player, like what would they want in me? But at the same time, I was like, wow, this is kind of everything that I wanted. This is a new opportunity with a new organization where now I kind of have an idea of where I stand. But I had a really good spring training, uh, a really good spring training where I played really well uh, throughout all of spring. And for some reason, I, I don't know if it was just injuries that kind of from the top, they kind of bumped everybody down. Uh, but I ended up getting released at the end of that spring training. Hmm. Um, so it definitely wasn't what I was anticipating. I was hoping for a better opportunity with the organization. But at the same time, I realized that was baseball. I had seen it happen to so many other people that I had played with uh, over the course of those last two years. Um, so I, I wasn't completely surprised. 
Um, especially since they didn't have a lot invested in me as a player, you know, I was, a, I was a throw into that trade. Um, but I, I wasn't completely surprised. And, you know, I, when I came back home after I got released, I, I still kind of had the desire to keep playing. Um, but deep down I knew, you know what, I, I, I had my exposure to professional baseball. I saw that a lot of it goes, goes with the money, you know, the, the, the guys that are drafted at the top of the draft, you know, that are, that are, uh, they have a lot of money invested and those are guys that are going to get the, the opportunities every single day. So I was like, I can probably go play independent league baseball and, you know, maybe sign, you know, with another professional or, or with another major league organization. But at the same time, I'm just going to be stuck back in the same spot that I was, you know, as a 40th round draft pick, you know, the Dodgers uh, minor league system where, you know, I'm kind of bouncing around and maybe getting, you know, uh, five or six ABs at every week, you know? So, um, I just kind of, you know, you, you take a deep look in the mirror and you say, what, what do you want to do next? And, you know, I looked at myself and I said, you're probably good enough to play, major, you're probably good enough to play professional baseball, but playing in the major leagues probably isn't going to work out. So I decided, you know, let's move on to other things. So um, I kind of dipped my toes into scouting a little bit. Um, you know, I worked as an amateur scout for Dennis Moeller with the Los Angeles Dodgers here in the Southern California area. Uh, I did that for a few years, uh, but it just wasn't really what I was expecting. Um, so I decided to, to move on to other things and, you know, potentially maybe looking to set up a, an avenue where I can get into broadcasting myself, similar to my dad and my, and my grandfather. Long gone are the days of Ron Say, Steve Garvey, Davey Lopes, and Bill Russell being a seasonal constant. Players come and go, but the voices that color the game remain. Um, one of the things that my dad is... Uh, I think been very good about this as, as has told me is, Hey, we're not here. You and I are not here to break, to, 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 to break a story. It's not about getting scoop. Our, our focus is what happens during the game between the lines. Um, and, and, and we can relate information that pertains to the game, but we're not here to break stories about this or that. And as you see on, on social media. And so I, I, I tend to, 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 to step back a little bit. I don't try to develop real close relationships with current ball players. Um, we have good strong relationships with past players, retired players. But when it comes to the current players, I don't want to get too close because my job is really as an observer uh, and to gather information that pertains to the game, the, the, the ifs, ands, or buts, and the explaining the whys and wheres. But that's really about it. And um, nowadays, it, it, it's much different. Um, one of the things that I think that has really impressed me uh, in this, in these last five years, is what the Dodgers have done with their foundation and giving back to the community and investing in the community. And I think that's really a strong part of it because it's this 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 now carries on that whole feeling of family to the to the fam, to the community itself. That it's really the Dodgers. I hate to use this cliche, but it's so true. Guggenheim. They're the owners, but at the same time, they're also stewards of a of a community entity because there's such an identification between Los Angeles and the Dodgers. And I think the the the, the, the thing is, uh, 
the Dodgers for the longest time, and I'll give you an example, um, the infield, the infamous infield, right? Garvey, Say, Lopes, Russell, together for all those years. Uh, those, that was still, that would harken back to the days in the 40s and the 50s where there wasn't this much movement of ball players. So you grew up with a Duke Snyder, with a Gil Hodges, with a Kiwi Reese. They were always there. They were always Dodgers. Now, the Dodgers realize, and many teams realize, you're not able to do that anymore. Sometimes the longest you can keep a player is five years or six years before they want to they, they want to test free agency, or you you, you negotiate a, a contract that, that wants to keep them there. So the Dodgers have this challenge of maintaining stability with constant changing faces. So how do you accomplish that? You accomplish that by creating a farm system that is so deep in talent and so strong in player development that even though your favorite player, uh, you might have been a, a huge Zach Greinke fan and thought, oh my God, Clayton Kershaw, Zach Greinke, back to back, this is it. And then Greinke decides, you know what? As he said one day after the All-Star break, before he left the Dodgers the following year, he looked across the field at a game with the Diamondbacks and said, you know, those guys look really good. I think I think I'd like to play with those guys hmm. and made that decision. He had a, a, an opt out and he decided to go there. Well, I know a lot of people were so disappointed saying, oh, my God, we had Zach Greinke and Clayton Kershaw. And now we're not going to have that combo again. Well, the thing is, how long was it before we moved on from that relatively short? Because you have such talent that you bring in and you can plug in. And all of a sudden, the pain goes away because the team is winning. And as long as the team consistently gives you a good product and you're able to understand where this team is going and why the decisions are made, uh, overall, you begin to say, okay, I'm, I'm a fan, not of an individual, but I'm a fan of this team. Fuego Podcast is edited by Dylan Wren. I'm your host, Gabe Zaldivar. If you like the show, you can help support it in a tremendous way by liking, following, and subscribing across your favorite streaming services. Give a comment or a five-star rating. With your support, you're helping give some of sports' greatest stories the spotlight they deserve. Next week, we do just that, pulling back the curtain on a rather uplifting sports story you might not know about. <laughs>